Hi, Patrick. Welcome to Network Capital. In this podcast, we try and deconstruct why people do what they do. I first stumbled upon your research while uh, writing an article for Mint, and I loved the concept of FOMO and FOBO. But then I delved deeper, uh, for, you know, during the process of writing that article, and it turns that you're a pioneer in the subject, and now you have a book coming out. Could you briefly tell us uh, how you got here? I mean, you had a very interesting career trajectory. We'd love to get a snapshot. And then discover some mental models that led you to what you do. Well, first of all, it's great to be here, and I'm delighted to to tell you the trajectory. It's it's I've had a very unusual path, so uh, it was not at all what I expected, sort of as I set out into the world. But it's been far more interesting and I think fun than I could have anticipated. I came out of Georgetown University. I had studied. In economics, and I went to work in private equity and venture capital in Latin America, went off to Harvard Business School, and then went to work in emerging markets, private equity, investing all over the world. And I was quite happy on that path. And then unfortunately for me, or maybe fortunately now, in 2008, uh, my firm, AIG, blew up. I was in the private equity group. We were put up for sale. I ended up sort of losing faith in the firm and left and started doing my own investing and advisory work. And eventually, uh, through some of the things I was doing, I was working on writing a book about entrepreneurship. And a, a reporter reached out to me and said, listen, I've, I'm traced FOMO, the term FOMO, back to you. And I said, yes, of course. I created that when I was a student in business school. And he said, well, did you realize it's in the dictionary? And I had no idea. And so that led me to start focusing more on decision making and, and really researching indecision decision making and how we can make better decisions in our lives and our careers. Fascinating. So you wrote about it in the Harbus, right? Talk to me about the origins of the term. Yeah, so it, yeah, the the Harbus is the student newspaper of Harvard Business School, and it is uh, you know, just a little paper that we had on campus. And basically, what happened was I started school at HBS in 2002, and I had been living in New York. And right before I started business school, two big things happened. The first thing was that uh, the, the tech bubble of the early 2000s blew up and I was a venture capitalist. And so I watched all of the companies we'd invested in basically fire everybody and shut down. It was a, a really kind of traumatic for me professionally. And then personally, I had lived through 9-11 and seen that with my own eyes living in Manhattan at the time in lower Manhattan. And so having seen those two things come together in rapid succession, I just sort of started to question you know, is the world as I knew it going to exist going forward? And therefore, when things sort of got a little bit more normalized and I went up to Boston, I just wanted to live life to the fullest. And this meant participating in everything I could. So literally every party, every dinner, every class, every trip, every job interview, you name it. It was exhausting. And I also realized that this was the culture of the school and that my friends were doing the same. And so I started to call this fear of, uh, of missing out on these opportunities FOMO. And I wrote about it in our school newspaper. And, you know, later on, and we can talk about it, uh, sort of how it spread, but it became this word that wasn't just for a bunch of kids at an MBA program, but it became something that really characterizes modern digital life. When did you realize that it has become a thing? Of course, uh, before reaching the dictionary, it must have got a lot of traction among students. Uh, what did they say? Did they relate to it? They did. And so in the beginning, it was really about MBAs. So 
there was I, I was by the way i was completely unaware of its spread to be honest with you i knew that my friends and i used it i knew that it was sort of popular amongst my crowd socially but i did not realize it had gone global but as i went back in in writing this book i i did research on the uh, sort of the the trajectory of the word and i found that in 2007 there was an article in business week bloomberg business week all about this phenomenon among mba students called fomo that had started at harvard and then uh, so that was one place it was used it was used in a book about harvard business school a year later and then the tech community sort of started using it because i think what happened is a lot of the mbas started sort of taking the word with them when they went to work on Wall Street or in consulting or in tech. And so it became a lingo that was propagated by my classmates and I. And eventually uh, there was a tipping point. There was a blog post written about FOMO by um, by somebody who had been in South by Southwest. And, and it just went from there. It's sort of like, you know, in some ways I, it's a terrible comparison, but it's like the way that sort of a virus would spread across the world. It's just little by little slowly slowly and then it reaches a critical mass and then suddenly it becomes something that's used in popular culture and uh, in your article you alluded to some solutions i'm talking about the first article uh, were you able to apply the lessons uh, or the recommendations to your own life at business school you know it's funny i think to be honest with you i was very happy to have tons of fomo and um, it was something that I viewed the opportunity as one that would be two years of my life that would be quite extraordinary. And then I would revert back to normalcy afterwards. And so I didn't see it as much of a problem, although I did think that it was important that we all recognize that it was happening and therefore call it out when we saw it. So, for example, if you and your friends had seven different social events on one night, which, by the way, was not unusual you, yeah. should recognize, you should recognize it, right? I mean, you, you're, you, you, you've also done an MBA, and so you know how that world is. And so just be conscious of how you're spending your time. And 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 I think that that was really all I had at that point. I hadn't thought much beyond that for the simple reason that it hadn't yet sort of – there was no social media, for example. So it hadn't become sort of a society-wide situation that had serious implications. Uh, of course, it has now, but at that time, it was just kind of fun. Um. What did you do after business school and uh, did FOMO, how did you think about your career and uh, talk to you about the first couple of years after business school and uh, how you decided to mold your career and where was FOMO, FOGO, ODA, all of these things, uh, were they at the back of your mind? Yeah, that most definitely. So we talked about FOMO, fear of missing out. There's another term that I came up with uh, at the same time that didn't get famous quite yet, although it's gaining, it's global currency and it's phobo or fear of a better yeah, my option was about your second term phobo. exactly that's the one that i i love I, I sort of think is a little bit more interesting but but when i think about careers and how it affected me you know i had worked in, in private equity before school and so i um I, I wanted to work in private equity after school. And a lot of all of my friends were in private equity and were getting jobs or seeking jobs in private equity. So I felt tremendous sort of desire to stay part of that club. It was part of my identity. And, and so I, a lot of the reason why I went back into the industry was FOMO. Um, had I been a little bit more thoughtful, I might not have done that because what happened was uh, it was kind of a, not a great environment for job seekers. And I ended up taking a job in the industry simply because I wanted to work in the industry at a firm I did not like. Um, and I knew it going in and and I felt some FOBO because I thought I should just wait for something better. But then I was nervous. And so I, I signed on to this 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 private equity firm that 
just culturally wasn't a good fit for me. Uh, it was it was just not a team that I liked. And I went to work there and I realized immediately how much I disliked it to the point that in the third month after graduating, I actually took a nap under my desk. <laughs> It was bad. And and I, and I sort of realized, like, this is not for me. And so I started looking for a job right away that was much more oriented to the things I enjoyed before, sorry, international investing. And that's what I had done before. And, and so that was more about really looking at what I cared about and truly wanted. And the minute I got that job, I took it immediately. I had no FOBO because I knew it was the right place to be. And, and I actually spent, you know, several very good years investing all across the world at this division of AIG that, unfortunately for me, you know, was part of the financial crisis. But beforehand, I was quite happy. Um, and uh, as you discovered, so you were clear that you wanted to be in the investing space. Uh, but today, you've uh, you have a, a portfolio career in a way. You're an author. You're an entrepreneur. You also advise people. Um, talk to me about this evolution. What prompted you to make this uh, these set of choices? It's very interesting because um, sometimes. It, we, in order to have the courage to do the things that we potentially are better at and would love to do, uh, we have to go through some sort of um, very deep, difficult period in our lives. And for me, that was the 2008 financial crisis. So, you know, I'm working at AIG. I'm getting promoted. I was doing very well there. And then um, 2008, everything blew up. My firm, I, you know, I had, I had shares in the company, right? Stock in the company that fell 97%, basically. Right. And, it was just rough and 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 all of Wall Street got blown up and our firm was particularly affected because it was sort of the um, it was sort of the the poster child for corruption and greed. And so all of a sudden I went from having a CV that had a nice brand on it to having a CV that people looked at sort of with a lot of derision. And so I just decided, I looked around, we were sold uh, after a while, and I thought we might be sold to Goldman Sachs or something, and maybe that would be a good outcome, but we were not sold to Goldman Sachs, we were sold to somebody who I didn't have as much sort of um, knowledge of and didn't feel as comfortable with, and so I thought, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to leave, and so I made a deal with my boss to stay on um, as a consultant on some of the boards of my companies, and I took a year off and went on sabbatical and moved to Europe for part of the time and just sort of deprogrammed myself from all of the stress and all of the treadmill that, that I had been on for so many years, and I realized as I did that, you know, I had to sit back and think, what do I really want to do? But I was afraid because I didn't know yet. And so I decided to start experimenting and trying lots of different things. And one, so basically I started, um, I started doing consulting work around sort of international investing as a way to make some money and then investing in side projects and entrepreneurial startups started by people I knew in my network or in my prior professional career. And as I did that, I realized it was actually a pretty interesting path. A lot of my friends called and said, can you tell us how to do this? So I decided to write about it because I'd always loved writing and I'd always wanted to write a book, but I had no idea what to write about. So I wrote a, a book proposal about this concept that I developed called the 10% Entrepreneur, which is you know keeping your day job and investing in side projects. And uh, we were trying to get a book deal. I got an agent, but we were getting rejected by everybody. We got 33 rejections. And it was exactly at that moment that the journalist called to tell me he was writing an article about me and my history with FOMO. The article came out, it went viral, and I had a book deal two weeks later. How did the journalist find you? Google. This guy, <laughs> his name is Ben Schreckinger, and he's a good friend of mine today. But I remember it was really kind of wild. I was just... 
it was I mean, this whole thing is like you can't make it up. It's cinematic. You know, I've been rejected by all these publishers. I was very frustrated because the thing is, it's hard to get a book published uh, by a major uh, publishing house if you don't have sort of a lot of a following and you know tons of twitter following and you'd written all of it and i just didn't have those things i'd never been a public person and so when when um when uh when i got this email from ben it was literally two days before my 10-year business school reunion and so i was going up to boston where he lived and so i thought you know why don't we just grab a beer and i had no expectations for it. i just didn't even think about what could potentially come out of this like i i never occurred to me he'd even write me put me in the article but we right. met we had a really nice time and then three months later when the when the article came out or i guess it was a month later it was all about me and fomo and it was just a really interesting piece and it went you know it went all over the internet and that was really the first time i realized that if you're um if you are careful about what you do and if you create things that people find interesting, actually, and, and I think you do this very well, um, putting your name out there and writing about your ideas is actually a very powerful thing to do. And so that really started me on this world of writing. And it's a, you know, it was a long, long trajectory to get from that to where I am today. But um, I think the big theme here is if you've got ideas, share them. Yeah, that's that's really powerful. I'm just going to backtrack a little bit. Uh, so business school, uh, every single person faces FOMO, FOBO, all of these uh, things. But uh, most people also remember it as a as a very useful time, as a time to explore a lot of things. Was that also the case for you? I ask because, uh, you know, I feel that after business school, you became even more intentional about your career choices. So I wanted to understand if uh, if if the school experience had something to do with it. Most definitely. And I would say what I got out of business school, I would say, are three things. Number one is um, uh, I think HBS does a really good job of of focusing on leadership. And I was not you know, I was I was kind of I mean, it's going to be hard for you to believe this today, but I was not one to speak up very much, to be honest. I didn't talk a lot in class. I didn't feel very confident um, expressing my opinions. I just was not that person. I wasn't the stereotypical HBS person. And so being in that environment helped me better to, to cultivate leadership and be uh, confident in expressing myself. So that, that would be one thing. Number two is the group of people that I met in the network was really powerful um, just because, I mean, the types of people that you're exposed to do some really interesting things. And I think there's a lot of uh, sort of the goodwill and people help each other out and it's just a lot of common understanding so that having that kind of community has been super powerful ever since and the third thing I'd, I'd say is that um, I guess you learn how to express yourself in a different way and business school programs do a really great job of teaching you how to look at a large number of facts pick out what's important make conclusions and then take action. And that was something that I had never really been exposed to for, before. So when you combine the three things together, those those things have helped me do everything I've done so far. And in fact, they're highly complementary, all of the things, and they're sort of symbiotic. So the MBA program, I credit it with, you know, everything that I'm doing today. Got it. Um, so you're at your 10-year reunion. You've had this interesting conversation with this journalist. Um, when you met your classmates after 10 years, did you feel that they were still suffering from FOMO? Um, and uh, what were, like what was the 10-year reunion like? What were the changes you observed uh, amongst your peers? So we had our 10-year reunion in a very um, in a very good time, actually. And I would say 
uh, it was kind of in the middle. It was it was 2014, so we were in the middle of this boom that just ended. And as compared to our five year our five year reunion, we had right in sort of the middle of the financial crisis. And so actually, like it was quite interesting. There was no black tie event. It was just business dress and people have. I was working at AIG, My, you know, we had people at Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns and everybody was sort of just feeling very traumatized. And so it was kind of a downcast affair. And in fact, it, it just felt like um, it, in a way it was kind of interesting because people didn't seem to compete very much. And at the tenure, people were starting to feel their success and some of our classmates had become well known. And so there was I, I think there was there was a, a bit of FOMO about the fact that um, some people felt that they had not been successful enough. And the thing about FOMO, if you look at the definition, is that anxiety um, provoked by um, a feeling that somebody else is doing something better than you at that moment. And so you compare yourself to them. And there's a lot of that at the 10-year. Interestingly, at the 15-year, it was kind of the opposite. Uh, people were much more in touch with what they really, truly wanted. And they weren't worried about following the crowd so much. They were much more honest about the challenges they'd had. And so I think it's interesting. Those five-year check-ins really give you a sense of how you and your sort of peer group are changing as you live your lives. That is so interesting. Um, so you've got this book deal. The first one was with Penguin, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, what's your, what was your process of writing and has it changed to the book that uh, that has just come out uh, a few days back? Yeah, so the I think I've learned a lot. When I wrote my first book, um, so I work really quickly, first of all. Sometimes people are like, they don't believe me when I say it. But basically the way I've written both books is I go somewhere where I am sort of in, in isolation. So quarantine actually feels like a lot like this because I didn't I don't leave the house particularly uh, often, or I go to a coffee shop, but I just write all day, every long, every day from nine in the morning to I work until after 10 at night. And I just do that until I, I have a draft. And so typically that takes about a month. Um, and I, the wow. first, yeah, it's, it's, it's now granted I've done some prep work. Yeah. I've gotten done some research and I've also done interviews. Um, but the thing about the books that I write is they're based, the first one was really based on my own experience. And so it was about me writing down the, my methodology, then substantiated by case studies that I, that I gathered from my network. So that one actually was kind of easy, um, in terms of gathering, gathering, getting the content, right. What I didn't know how to do was how to structure an argument and make the book flow in a way that people would find it compelling. And so the editor worked a lot with me on that to make it better this time around, I went to Mexico City for about six weeks and wrote very intensively. And it was a little different because unlike the first one, this one, I really needed to do some deep research on clinical psychology in order to make sure that everything I talked about was sensible. Uh, and so that was, I think, the, the part that I found most interesting slash challenging. At the same time, I also included a lot of sort of thinking from the world of venture capital, which is the world in which I live. So I combined a business mindset with a psychological mindset, did a bunch of interviews. And I, what I think I did better this time around is the book is far more, um, I, I think it's less, um, the structure is just a lot more compelling and interesting and I've become a much better writer. And so I'm very, very proud of, of how it worked out. And I think, um, you know, the feedback I'm getting has been that people are really enjoying it. Um, even the article that I wrote, uh, drawing upon your work, uh, was read by you know hundreds of thousands of people. My editor tells me. Wow. And uh, one thing that people um, uh, people kept coming back to was how do you 
negotiate with uh, each of these things. I think there is also another term, FODA. So could you explain some strategies that uh, millennials can apply and even more mature people uh, to deal with FOMO, FOBO and FODA? And you should define FODA because we haven't discussed that yet in the podcast. Sure. Well, FODA stands for fear of doing anything. And that's what happens when you combine if you're in a state of FOMO and then you also have FOBO at the same time, you basically you you can't do anything at all. So there are these are this is a big topic. So I'll give you some some ideas and then obviously um, point you to some places where you can read more because I wrote uh, more than half the book is on exactly this. And so um, I, it's funny. Uh, sometimes I read business books and and you know you think oh this book could be an article, uh, a seven page article. And what I try to do and I I, I hope I pulled it off is this is not, uh, you know, this is much deeper. And so you really do need to sort of spend the time to get the work out of it. But um, but let's, let's start with some basic stuff. So FOMO, Fear of Missing Out, is about this idea that you are uh, focused on uh, this percept. You have a perception there's something better out there for you uh, that others are doing while you're not. And it's also about this uh, this fear of being excluded from a group activity, being excluded from the crowd, from the herd. And so really, if we think about its root causes, FOMO is about uh, aspiration. It's about this idea that something's better out there, a perceived something is better out there. But in fact, you have no way to know if it's actually better or not, right? And so part of the basic strategies that you can sort of implement with trying to figure out FOMO is trying to get to the bottom of the story. Is what you're perceiving to be better actually better in real life or is perception deception? And that requires a process of due diligence. So if something, for example, say your friend has a startup and you're thinking, oh, I wish I had a startup. Do you really know if you'd even enjoy it? Do you even know if you'd have a good idea? And so part of your process will be to uncover what's really going on there, get to the bottom of it. Can I do this? Do I even know what I want to do? Can I afford to do this? You know, could, could, could I even sort of come up with a good idea for a startup? And so there's a whole process around discovery there. The second element is this herd element. I want to be part of the crowd. And so that's really about thinking about motivation. Are you being intentional or are you simply taking cues from others? So that's kind of... That's the FOMO sort of basic elements and what you need to go after them for 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 things that are important. Um, with FOBO, FOBO is about maximization. It's the idea that there's something better out there. If you keep waiting and delay your decision, that somehow something better will come along. Um, and as a result, you hold option value for as long as possible. So it's like you don't make plans with people. You don't firm them up. You have three sets of plans and you decide at the last minute, that kind of stuff. Or with you know work, you know, you're looking for a job and – you basically you get an offer and then you try to shop it to 10 other places. That is the FOBO. And so it's all about maximization. And there, the the insight that's really kind of fascinating is that shockingly, maximization in and of itself is not the problem. The problem is the process that you use to make decisions. And because when you have FOBO, you're not willing to let go of what you can't have. And so the process that I that I that I offer in, in my work is a process whereby you figure out a way to let go of things. It's really focused around recognizing that indecision is not uh, is not a good place to be, that it's not doesn't give you more flexibility. In fact, it traps you. 
Um, so those are the two big mindsets behind them. And then, you know, there's a great uh, a great place where you can. One of the big things I also focus on is the fact that you shouldn't waste any time on unimportant things. So decisions that don't matter can take up a lot of time and they delay us. They procrastinate. Actually, we procrastinate from the things we should be doing. And so I did a TED talk called Making Faster Decisions that came out uh, I love last that, year. By the way. Oh, thanks no so much. Thing and the high stakes something yeah precisely yeah it's been it's been amazing because i think we've done like eight hundred thousand views and basically the idea is and i in in the video sort of lays it out really well is like how to not waste time on things that don't matter and so i've been using these strategies for years and i i feel like i'm a pretty you know it really makes a difference for me um i like totally and it resonates uh uh so strongly with uh, millennials who are constantly uh, we are uh, flooded with choices of uh, no stake, low stake decision in a sense that when it comes to doing the most important things, sometimes we find ourselves without energy and motivation. Um, so, yeah, totally agree with the framework. How do you suggest people use your book? Because you said that this book is not an article, which is awesome. So mm-hmm. tell us what's the best way to make the most out of this book. So the way the book is structured is... Uh, basically, I, I sort of start out with a history of FOMO just so you have the groundwork. And then I lay out definitionally what are FOMO and FOBO. And I sort of show you the constituent elements that cause them. So not only the definition and, you know, the, 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 the stuff I just talked about, like aspiration, hurt, all, all that sort of stuff, but then getting into what are the root causes, right? So why is it, for example, that f- we needed a word FOMO? Because humans have been comparing themselves to other people since the beginning of time, right? It's, it's in our DNA to want to, uh, to want to compare ourselves to others and make sure that we're doing better, or at least we're part of the crowd. Because if you think back to the earliest humans, if they were left out, didn't have information, uh, they could be in peril. So these are not new concepts, but, but the reality is that they were not problematic in the way they are today. And the change has been technology and overwhelming choice and all the sorts of things that, that have come with the age uh, that we live in, the digital age, the internet age, and the social media age. And so I sort of take you through in a very, I would say, detailed, sort of structured way, all of these these causes of these behaviors. And then I take you through the implications because... FOMO and FOBO have clear implications for careers and business and life. And I take you through examples, crystal clear examples of of what happens when you fall uh, sort of victim to these things. Then the last part of the book is really it's it's sort of a diagnostic and then it's a set of solutions. And so I, I have sort of quizzes you can do to figure out if you have FOMO or FOBO. And then I have very structured processes that you can then use going forward in order to document you know, your decision-making process to improve your decision-making process. It's very simple, but powerful. And it's a lot of the lessons I've learned as a venture capitalist that are combined with what I've learned from working with clinical psychologists. And then finally, um, I have a whole chapter on sort of a big part of this is, is missing out. So uh, when we have FOMO, it's not just about deciding what we want. That's not enough because then you have to let go of what you can't have. And so that's a lot of, that's a lot of, of work around sort of how do we reduce the role of technology in our lives? How do we have a healthy relationship with technology? How do we uh, act mindfully and, and do things like meditation? And so we look at that. And, and, and at the very end of the book, I also look at how FOMO can be used as a source for good. How can we learn from our FOMO to see if there's things we want to do that maybe we haven't tried before? And how can we engage with those things in a healthy way instead of in a way that we're just chasing after things that we shouldn't have? Mm, this is precious, uh, Patrick. 
Um, for the people who are familiar with your work or um, who who are subscribing to your newsletter or podcast, which is again like a be- beautiful name, by the way, you're a master at uh, <laughs> coming up with the perfect name. Um, who has been the one person who's benefited the most, or who are some people who have benefited and told you so about you know the unexpected ways in which uh, your work uh, helped them? That's a great question. Um, listen, I'll tell you really kind of a fun example that that I thought was really sweet, which is that I went back to my business school reunion, as I told you, my 15 year reunion and over the summer. And I was really touched and surprised at how many of my classmates came up to me and said, because of uh, especially this was a, a lot of them were 10 percent entrepreneur types. They said, you know, I read your your book, The 10% Entrepreneur, and I started doing projects on the side. I have one friend who has he bought a bunch of real estate. I have another friend who invested in companies. And it was something where they just felt like it was, it was an area they had never considered for themselves. And having read the book, they started doing sort of side projects and investing and in starting businesses on the side. And it had been really impactful. And one of my classmates said that I'm a frequent topic at their dinner table, which I found quite shocking. And and it was really, um, really nice to hear that. So on the 10%, I, I you know, it's amazing how many people reach out via LinkedIn and, and, and other social media and Twitter just to tell me that they started something and that they wouldn't have done it without without uh, without having read the book. And I would say the other thing that's been surprising as I've traveled around the world, uh, because I've given now book talks in more than 25 countries, everywhere from Myanmar to Mexico to uh, West Africa to East Africa to Europe and the U.S., obviously. Um, one of the things that's been quite interesting is everywhere I go, no matter where it is, People have heard of FOMO and they want to take a selfie with me and they want to tell me about their FOMO and what they're doing to beat it. And so I've been so touched by um, by how global this has become and how people are able to even in very different cultural contexts are able to identify with this concept. And then listening to the podcast, you know, I was in Sierra Leone giving a talk last year and the person who introduced me had was he, he listens to my podcast and I just I just didn't I didn't expect that I was so it, it was so shocking to me. And he was telling me about the episodes that he had learned from and how it had affected his thinking. And I just thought to myself, isn't it incredible? Again, it goes back to and, and, you, and you really do this well, um, you know, in, in your work is creating things and then letting them travel throughout the world and, and sharing your ideas. And then people come back and they and you may not hear from them, but you may hear from them at unexpected times that they've been able to learn something and engage with what you've created. Uh, it's fascinating. Um, tell me, Patrick, are there differences in the ways people from Sierra Leone to the U.S. to parts of Europe respond? Are there cultural differences to response of FOMO? Are there any observations that you want to share? Yes, it's fascinating how this works. So <laughs> I love it. And I'm going to start out. I'm, I'm going to pick on you a little bit because one thing um, that I hear a lot and I have a lot of uh, South Asian friends, either, you know, South Asian friends that were born in the U.S. and grew up here or or who are from uh, the subcontinent and then have moved here. And there is a uh, clear phobo uh, element in culture in in, right. in in South Asia. People like, you know, they never they, you know, there's a lot of making multiple sets of plans and committing at the last minute. And so all my friends say like, wow, this is amazing. This is like, you know, this is something that that we see in our culture a lot. And it's it's it, that makes me laugh. And I think part of it is because um, 
the role of family is so different in different places. So when you have pressure from family or you have very close ties with family, which which you do, like in the U.S., you know, you move out of your parents' house, you never go back. Oftentimes in 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 South Asia, people live with multi generations of family, and so you have different expectations on you, and so you maybe not able to make is you have to sort of accommodate other people's uh, needs and wants in a different way. I think that can lead to things uh, like FOBO. There's also very interesting um, in in cultural context where there's more collectivist cultures, people uh, tend to uh, have less FOMO because they're 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 suppressing what they want in order to make sure that they take care of the people around them. Um, I would say in the U.S., uh, which is a very consumerist culture or has been, we'll see how things evolve going forward. FOMO and you know where there's tremendous penetration of social media, um, FOMO is is a huge big deal. And then I went to the place I, over the summer. I, I went to the one land in the world I've been to where I have found no FOMO. Um, I went to Turkmenistan. Oh and, my! <laughs> yeah, and if you know anything about Turkmenistan, there is basically very little internet. Very, it's very hard to find the internet, and it's also um, it's a country that where there's a um, a sort of a ruler who controls everything, and so there's very little, basically very little information. Everything is monitored, and there's also you know it's just. There's just not a lot of outside information. And I, I had dinner with with somebody who lives there who had lived in New York before. And he was explaining to me that, you know, it's just a, a society in which you don't have any information to compare yourself with others and you don't know much about the outside world. So there it's it, there's just not a lot. of There's no FOMO there. And so it was quite fascinating to be there and to see a completely FOMO less culture. It was it was fascinating. So, wow, you've given a talk in Turkmenistan as well. So that's clearly now it's a, um, really a global phenomenon. Um, <laughs> and COVID makes it even more obvious, right? Like, I think COVID, uh, the current crisis, has just brought about uh, the different aspects of FOMO and FOBO that, uh, that you talk about in your work. Are, you, are there some ref- reflections you want to share about uh, how potentially people are going through it and what might they do to think through some challenges? Yeah, it's been on my mind. I've had a lot of free time to think about COVID and how it affects FOMO and FOBO. And and it is something that I think is, it's fascinating what has happened. Obviously, we are all living in in our quarantine. And in, right before quarantine took off, I'll rec- I, re- I recall um, going to the grocery store and buying toilet paper because I had seen on the news that everybody was buying toilet paper. And so I bought more toilet paper than I could possibly use in a year, right? And as many of us did. And so there was all this panic buying, which was very much driven by FOMO. And then also right before lockdown, uh, there was a real resistance to social distancing and a desire to sort of have that last party or that last vacation. And that's very FOMO-driven news. And then we sort of all locked ourselves inside. And I, in the early days, was checking the news all the time, which is very FOMO-driven. And then there was a shift in me. And I realized, okay, actually, I'm at home. I can't do anything. There's nothing to miss out on. Why don't I actually spend some time reading and watching all of the television shows that I've been meaning to watch for the last 10 years and learning to cook. And you'll be happy to know last night that I actually made a vegan uh, curry with, and I made my own naan last night. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much. I mean, let me tell you something. I didn't think I could make naan and I did, and it was quite good. So I'm quite proud of myself. I bought all the spices, but, but you know, that was, and so that, that sort of stuff was fun for a couple of weeks and then about three weeks into it. And, and I'd be curious what you think, because I, you're, I think you're, you and I are quite similar in that we travel and we quite social. 
I sort of started to realize, oh, my goodness, like I am feeling FOMO now. It's not FOMO for a party. It's FOMO for the life that I should be living right now. It's FOMO for the experiences, the opportunities, the little things like just going and buying, you know, food at a restaurant, sitting down with friends. And so this FOMO that I feel it's deeper. And I think what's going to happen, at least in my case, and I think in many people's cases, and we can go outside again and life sort of resumes normality, is that we're going to want to do everything. And there's going to be a tremendous period of like just living for the moment. And I don't think it's a bad thing because frankly, it means we have something to, to, to live for again, something to miss out on. Right. Yeah. That, that's uh, really well put, uh, Patrick. Um, now that the book is out, uh, what are you on to next? What's the next big goal for you? Well, I am going to have a book party, a global book party, on May 5th at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, joined by my friend Nir Eyal, who wrote Hooked and Indistractable. And so that you can you can register, actually. Everybody's invited. It's at virtualfearofmissingout.splashthat.com. So that will be happening. And then I am, uh, my, my podcast continues. We're having an awesome season. It's really terrific. And I have uh, a very exciting, I, I taped some shows that'll come out in the fall with Jay Shetty, who I'm, you may have heard of, who's an amazing, um, he was a monk. And now he right. teaches us all about mindfulness. So that, that's a lot of fun. And then, uh, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I had a whole series of books sort of tour uh, uh, on on the map that's all moved online. And so that should be interesting. And then going forward, you know, uh, looking at exciting companies to invest in. So these environments obviously show uh, bad ideas that were weak are quickly exposed. But there will be tremendous innovation and opportunity that will come forward. And so I'm going to focus on how I can get involved in those types of things. Gotcha. You know, the last aspect I want to uh, talk to you about is uh, your personal productivity and wellness. Um, you know, in this journey of, um, you know, carving out your own, uh, you obviously went through some difficult times through some challenging uh, experiences. Um, what are some things that you did at a personal level that helped you deal with it better? What kind of routines and uh, mental models got you through it? I have learned so much on this front. It is it's it's a pleasure to be able to share it because I think this at this very moment, many, many people are feeling a lot like I did back in 2008 when AIG blew up. And it was a very stressful time. I remember, uh, you know, I had been working very hard traveling all the time, really not taking care of myself. And when the financial crisis hit, I got very, very sick. All the stress sort of took its toll on me. And I was I was very unwell, actually. I, I couldn't uh, I couldn't uh, sort of do much. I had blurry vision uh, for months. I had to go to the heart doctor because they thought something was wrong with my heart at some point, which thankfully wasn't true. Um, I they, I sort of had a virus that was terrible and I, I, I was dizzy for months. It was really bad. And in fact, what happened was that was sort of in the fall of 2008. And then I got I got invited in February of 2009. A friend of mine named Shashank Singh, who uh, is a private equity professional, he works at Apex and in, in Mumbai, he he was getting married. And, and so I, I got on a plane and I went to India and I landed and I went and I stayed at the Taj that had just been attacked, actually, uh, a couple months earlier. And okay. I I just wanted to stay there because I really respected the fact that they had stayed open and because I always thought uh, the Tata group was really impressive. And so I stayed there 
And and I just thought to myself, you know, I'm going to use this opportunity in India to sort of get healthy. And so I spent two weeks in India. I had a little um, um, a little run in with Rahul Gandhi at the wedding. Funny enough, it was very it was very, I mean, <laughs> that was that I, I met him there, which is really funny. And um, but I had a really good time in India and I felt like it took me away from the stresses that I had been living. And when I got off the plane, I was healthy again, believe it or not. So I think I think India, it's Ayurvedic properties for getting me well again. And so when I got back, I decided to get in shape and I basically lost 20 pounds, started running. Um, I'd never run more than like three miles in my life. I started, I actually ended up running a marathon. So I got in much better physical shape. And then, yeah, it was really transformational. And then, so moving forward to today, you know, what, what, what do I do in my practice? Well, number one is I eat quite healthy. So I've, I, I really am focused on eating a healthy diet. Number two is I take naps actually, cause I'm, I'm not, I like to go to bed late. And so I actually take naps with frequency in order to make sure I get enough sleep. Number three, right. I met, I meditate daily. Um, and that I've been doing for a year and a half and has been very helpful to me. Um, and, and number four is I think I have a lot of outlets for creative expression. So, you know, obviously I have a lot of, you know, sort of social relationships, but also uh, writing really helps me. And so even in this difficult time, I have to say, I have felt very, very calm and very focused in a way that I really am surprised at because I have all of these tools from which to, to draw. Um, really helpful, Patrick. Um, Anything about your digital habits? Because uh, a lot of the work that you do as a creator uh, and an investor, I think, require you to uh, to be online. And yet you're somebody uh, who does a lot of deep work. So how do you uh, balance both? And what are some things that get you through it? This is definitely an area of focus for me. And I'm glad you asked the question because I just, <laughs> I just got my weekly screen report on my phone. And I complete. I mean, it's bad. So I was at about two hours a day, two and a half hours a day before quarantine. I was at 12 hours a day last week. So I'm gonna have to make some changes because I've completely like lost the plot. But basically, uh, and I, I admit that because we're all human and we you know, we're, we're not all perfect. And uh, you know, I've I've learned a lot from my friend Nir Eyal, Indistractable, about this topic, uh, just how to have a healthy relationship with digital because it's not about sort of abstinence. It's about using digital in a proper way. So a couple of things that are important to me are number one, I moved all social uh, to the back of my phone and I try to avoid, I actually took Twitter off my phone for two years, but had to put it back on for book launch time, but I will take it off again. Number two is um, I never keep my phone in my bedroom. I have uh, Ariana Huffington gave me this little bed that I can put my phone in and plug it in at night and I keep it in the right. kitchen. And so I think the problem that many of us have is that we, um, we, we use our phone as an alarm clock and that's the Trojan horse that brings it into the bedroom. So just get a normal alarm clock or get an Alexa and leave the phone outside. That's really critical. Um, and then I also, this is something new that I've been trying, but I think it, it's really kind of amazing. Um, I bought a, a, an hourglass. So I, instead of having, using my phone to time work sprints, I put my phone away and I use a, an old fashioned hourglass to, to time my work sprints. And so I'm not tempted to look at my phone. Oh, is that the Pomodoro glass, like 25 and five, or do you do longer sprints? I do 30. So I, you know, I turn it over and the sand starts going through and it's about a 30 minute sprint. And that, that works really well for me. Gotcha. How do you relax? Oh, I relax. Uh, you know, I'm a very hyperkinetic person. 
uh, I, I always think I have two speeds, zero and 100. But I, uh, number one, uh, I, I run. Uh, I love to run and I, I still run to this day. Number two, meditation. And number three, uh, yoga. I'm a, I'm a pretty uh, committed yogi. And that uh, became a big part of my sort of daily practice as well. Right now, I'm trying to do it at home. I much prefer it in the studio. But I think yoga, and for those of you who don't do it, do consider it. I always thought yoga was for other people, and I, I didn't think it was for me, and I thought it was weird and sort of stuff like that. The reality is, is like, it makes your whole body feel good, and it also, I think it keeps you young, and it's just a very powerful um, sort of mind-body exercise that kind of helps everything you do uh, in life. And, and I see people who are yogis. If you look, people who go to yoga, they always look so much healthier and younger than everybody else because it does have tremendous benefits. Awesome. Uh, Patrick, how can people uh, order your book? There's Amazon is, lo- is not working in many countries and uh, other equivalents. How might they read your work? So you can find the book uh, on Amazon. It's also digital. So if, if you if you can't get the physical, you can get the digital version. Uh, the best place to find me is also on my podcast, uh, FOMO Sapiens, which is distributed by Harvard Business Review. And you can connect with me on social. If you go to patrickmcginnis.com, you can find it. My Twitter is PJ McGinnis. My Instagram is Patrick J. McGinnis. I'm on LinkedIn um, and on Facebook. So I'm, I'm sort of everywhere. And on my website, I have tons of um, – you know, we have a, a really kind of fun FOBO FOMO quiz and a lot of blog posts that talk about all these topics. So there's there's no shortage of content. But I think the best way to start for people who are interested in these topics is to check out either my website or the podcast. Awesome. Uh, this has been a real pleasure and so interesting hosting you, pa- uh, Patrick. Really appreciate your time. And I'm super excited to read uh, your book again. Thanks so much, and I look forward to someday meeting in person. Yeah, looking forward. Thanks, Patrick.